Hello, hello. Good morning to everyone in the venue and here in our sanctuary. So great to be with you today for worship. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Adrian, and as always, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Grateful to help lead along with a great, great staff team here, and so grateful to be back with you today. Susie and I were gone last weekend as we visited her family in Oregon and had a nice visit, and um, grateful to be home. Grateful to be home with you, and grateful to be back in our series, God's Story, Our Story, as has already been noted though this morning, while well, we are in this series, God's Story, Our Story, throughout the year in which we look at the grand narrative of the Bible and a number of key episodes, a number of key chapters along the way that lead us to understand the Scriptures a little bit more for ourselves. With this belief that we strongly hold, you can understand the Bible for yourself. You can read the Bible for yourself. You can get much out of the Bible for yourself. And hopefully here on Sunday mornings, well, we can provide an appetizer for you that helps you feel like yeah, you can get into it on your own. And we have a reading plan that gets us through large portions of the Scriptures, not all the Bible, but large portions out at the information table. And that takes us through each week with reading plans that correspond to the given week's message. I pray that you would stick with me here this morning as we will get into a lot of history today. There's a lot of history in today's message as we look at God's story, and there's intensely relevant applications to our story, which I believe you'll be rewarded by if you are willing to stick with me. Are you willing? Amen, I hear. Thank you so much. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll jump in. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your story as written on the pages of Holy Scripture We thank you, God, that this is not just ancient history for Solomon and David and all the others that we're learning about, but this is also our story, because these stories were written down, as the Scriptures say, for our instruction that we would be challenged and encouraged and built up in every good work that we have before us today and this week. And God, we bring in a variety of challenges today amongst people in this room and in the venue There is no doubt relational heartache. Amongst people in this room and in the venue, there is no doubt physical heartache, physical ailments of different kinds. Among people in this room and in the venue, there is no doubt a variety of distractions that would prevent us from hearing anything from your word today. And so we would invite you, Holy Spirit, to make your home with us. To be in this room in a profound way, to lead us, even to lead me, I humbly ask that you would lead me, confessing to you, God, that I have nothing in myself. Would you please lead even me and and, and lead us, God, we give ourselves to you, we invite you to, to speak to us through your word, and we pray, God, that you would eliminate distractions such that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was on June 16th, 1858, that Abraham Lincoln gave his famous A House Divided speech before the Illinois State Senate. As he was running for office there in Illinois, this was before he became president, and he gave this famous speech, A House Divided, which would become one of his most famous political speeches along with the Gettysburg Address and the second inaugural address that he gave, A House Divided became one of his most famous speeches. 
as he foreshadowed his own experience just six or seven short years later of experiencing a nation divided, and he gave the title to that speech from Jesus' words in Mark chapter 3, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. This is true in the home. This is true in the church. This is true in our very selves, an individual divided against himself or against herself, cannot stand. It's true in our nation, isn't it? To give just a brief example, in our own nation today, we look at threats potentially from North Korea, potentially from Iran, I don't know, but we read about that on a regular basis. I, for one, am far more concerned with the internal threats that we experience today. They come from unbridled anger that is uncontrolled and groupthink here and marginalization there and polarization in politics and in racial relations over the past seven, eight, ten years that I haven't seen at least in my lifetime. I'm not talking about any political party. I'm talking about the reality of a foment of anger that seems unbridled today. And if you know your history at all, you know that most nations do not collapse from without, but from within. A house divided against itself will not stand. And so it was in the nation of Israel. If you turn with me to 1 Kings chapters 11 and 12, well, we're going to look at a story here this morning that is not very well known, but is a very important turning point in the Bible. You'll find 1 Kings about a quarter of the way through your Bible. If you go to 1 and 2 Samuel, go over a little bit to the right. If you go to Job or Psalms, come back a little bit to the left. It's those stuck-together pages about a quarter of the way through. 1 Kings 11 and 12. And like I said, this is an episode many of us don't know much about, but it's a key turning point of Middle Eastern history. And again, if you're willing to stick with me through the historical portion here, there's great relevance for our story as we derive a number of vital applications for our lives. Back in 1 Kings 10, Solomon institutes this heavy burden. We talked about Solomon's past couple weeks. He institutes this heavy burden of taxation on the people of Israel. And he has conscripted a heavy burden of grueling labor on the people of Israel, both to the north and to the south. Labor and taxation like they had never seen before. And he wants to build for himself bigger, bigger buildings and more massive ships. And we talked about Solomon's annual salary of $1.2 billion. And he's trying to get more and more for himself. And as he does so, he begins to act like a dictator. One of his chiefs is a man named Jeroboam. And Jeroboam rebels against Solomon, and he tends to become king over the northern tribes of Israel. And Solomon, of course, ain't having that. So he tries to kill Jeroboam, at which point Jeroboam flees from the north of Israel all the way down to Egypt. And he finds safe harbor, ironically, in Egypt. And he has safety there until Solomon dies, and then A prophet comes to Jeroboam and says, you can come back to your homeland. Indeed, God God is going to make you a king in Israel. And he gets to be a king of the ten northern tribes of Israel, but God reserves the two southern tribes of Israel, two names, Judah and Benjamin, for Solomon's son, 
Rehoboam. And he does that not because of Solomon. Solomon was an unfaithful king, but he does it for the sake of Solomon's father, David. So the covenant that God instituted through David, he promises to always have a king on the throne of David. And he does so, and ultimately that's fulfilled in Jesus. That's another message for another day. But the succeeder, the, the, the succession to, to the throne here is Rehoboam to the south. You getting all this? There'll be a quiz on these names immediately after this worship service. So Solomon dies, and Jeroboam is the new king over the northern tribes. And he goes to Rehoboam in the south, and he says, Let, let's, make a, well, let's make a peace treaty. Let, let's, let's relieve this heavy burden of taxation on the people that your father implemented. Let's reduce this conscripted labor on the people. Let's, let's make things right. And Rehoboam consults with wise elders of his community, and they tell him, yeah, pursue peace and reduce the taxation, reduce the physical labor. But Rehoboam really doesn't want to hear that. And so he goes to some young buddies who will tell him what he wants to hear. And he knows that they're going to tell him what he wants to hear. He goes to some yes men to tell him what he wants to hear. And they say, oh no, don't relieve your father's burden, make it worse. And so they go back, Rehoboam goes back to his people who have asked for relief and goes back to Jeroboam and he says, you think my father was difficult. My finger is as thick as his waist. You think he whipped you hard with leather. I will whip you with scorpions. And this heavy burden of taxation becomes even heavier. This heavy burden of conscripted labor becomes the burden of slavery. And Jeroboam to the north flees, and in the south is Rehoboam and his fighting men. And as Jesus said so poignantly in Mark chapter 3, verse 5, a house divided against itself cannot stand. So Jeroboam... Up north, rallies this huge insurrection. He becomes king in the north. And this all began because he was uh, greedy and rebellious at the beginning. He wasn't willing to wait his turn. And, and he rebelled against Solomon at the beginning. And so he, he rallies this insurrection up north, the ten tribes. And Jeroboam down to the south says, I'm going to take 185,000 fighting men from the two tribes that I still have. And we're going to take back the north. And there's a succession from the union, if you will. Does this sound at all like our history? Could it at all be relevant? Does history ever repeat itself? And there's civil war and bloodshed to come. At least that's what it looks like is going to happen. That's the upper story, if you will. Excuse me, that's the lower story, if you will. All that is happening in what we might call the lower story, in which you would have to say that uh, rebellious Jeroboam and greedy Rehoboam are responsible for this civil strife and this division well, within the nation of Israel. As you're looking at things from an earthly perspective, from the lower story, you'd say they are totally the cause of all of this. But at the same time as all this is happening, there's also an upper story in which God is still at work even amidst the dissension and the division of these kings. And here it is in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 22. Very long introduction. 
But this word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God, who was a prophet of God. Now, what would a prophet do? A prophet spoke for God to the people. God would speak to the prophet, and then the prophet would speak for God to the people. So here's this prophet of God, Shemaiah, a man of God. And, and God says to Shemaiah, Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin to the south and to the rest of the people, this is what the Lord says. Do not go up to fight against your brothers, the Israelites. Go home, every one of you, for this is my doing, says the Lord. So they obeyed the word of the Lord, and they went home again as the Lord had ordered. He says, don't fight. Don't go up against Israel, because this is my doing. This division is my, what? This division is God's doing? Isn't God a... God of peace and unity? What's going on here? Why would God institute this, this break, this division but between Israel and Judah? Well, to get that answer, go back to chapter 11, verse 9. And here's God appearing to Solomon before he died, obviously. To state the obvious, okay. Uh, chapter 11, verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him on two different occasions. God appeared to him, and yet even so, Solomon turned away from him. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. We talked about that in the past. He started to serve the God of women and the God of wealth and the God of his own power. That's what Solomon did. So he turned away from the Lord and started to serve other gods. Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you, and I will give it to one of your subordinates, which was Rehoboam, his son. So as God looks down on Judah and Israel, he doesn't merely see a nation divided against itself. He sees a nation that has chosen to divide itself against God. And God will not strongly support a nation that divides itself against him. He sees a rampant idolatry and a rampant unbelief that has cropped up all over Israel. And he sees slavery. And he sees polygamy. And he sees mistreatment of the foreigner who has come in. He sees mistreatment of the vulnerable, the fatherless, and the widows amongst them. And he says, I'm not having that. And so he sees a nation that's already been fractured by the time of Solomon. And as we see again and again in the scriptures, God says, I am opposed to the proud. I give grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble, but he is opposed to the proud. Can I hear you say that? God is gracious to the humble, but he's opposed to the proud. Still today, he's opposed to the proud. We got that? He's opposed to the proud. And so he said, I see this nation that is so prideful in their unbelief. I've given them such an entree for success, but they've gone their own way. And I'm opposed to them, so I'm going to take this nation that has been fractured, and I'm going to break it in two. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And a house that's divided against God cannot stand. 
So let me just take a moment and review because I know this passage is frequently unfamiliar to us and for some reason we don't teach this passage, maybe for obvious reasons, in our Sunday school classes to our kids. But this is a major turning point in the Bible. So you see a chart on your handout that kind of take you through how we got to this point. This is the period of the kings. Okay, first there's Samuel the prophet, then after that you have the period of the kings. And the first king is Saul. Second king is David. David's a great man, a wonderful king. He makes some terrible mistakes, but he falls to his knees. Always the response. In pride and in sin, we all sin and fall short of the glory, fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. That's not the problem. The problem is these other kings didn't hate their sin. Just like many people today who hate other people's sin, but they wink at their own sin. You know someone like that? Ooh, careful, careful. Don't hate other people's sin, but wink at your own sin. Be like David who hated his own sin and fell to his knees and apologized and paid terrible consequences. Then after David, yeah, you have Solomon. And by 930 B.C., the kingdom of Israel has become fractured under Solomon's leadership and God breaks it and it becomes these two kingdoms. And from here on out in the Old Testament all the way to the point of Ezra and Nehemiah, the rest of the Old Testament to the point of Ezra and Nehemiah, all of the prophets, all of Chronicles, all of the rest of First and Second Kings is this. Two divided kingdoms in which this beautiful nation is torn asunder because of their own sin and to the south you have a nation that's called Judah that's led first by Rehoboam and whenever from here on out in the Old Testament you see the name Judah that's just referring to the kingdom to the south and from here on out when you hear the name Israel or Ephraim Israel is not referring to the whole of Israel as it was previously constituted it's referring to the tribes to the north, and Ephraim is a synonym of that. The tribes to, to the north, first under Jeroboam, and then after that under a number of different kings thereafter. And there's going to be kingdom split like this for centuries. It's a story of great division and great pain, is it not? It's very sad. But even more fundamental than the lower story of divisiveness between these two kings was the upper story that from God's perspective, given back to Solomon back in chapter 11, he says in essence, Solomon, if you're going to call yourself a follower of God, but you're going to live for the world, I will divide you. Jennifer, Jimmy, Adrian. If you're going to call yourself a follower of Christ, but live like the rest of the world, in the way you think about others, in the way you speak about others, in the way you mistreat others, in the way you could care less about the vulnerable, like the rest of the world, then I will divide you. I will discipline you. I will not support you. And that's exactly what God does to Solomon and to the nation of Israel. Because a house divided against itself, it can't stand. It can't stand. And likewise, any man 
divided within himself, any woman divided within herself cannot stand. Part of this message, a huge part of this message is about duplicity. A man or woman divided within themselves, partly for God, partly for themselves, partly for God, partly for the God called mammon, called money, cannot stand. So the daily prayer, the essence of what was to make Israel unique amongst the nations was this. All the other nations, the earth, uh, at this time, at Solomon's time, worshipped dozens and dozens of God that were made in their own image, whereas God invites us to worship him, and he made us in his image. Instead, they carved images out of wood and stone and precious metals, and they would oftentimes be images that reflected them. So who are they worshiping there? They're worshiping themselves, or they're worshiping these little idols that they make, or sometimes they would worship the earth, because the truth is we're all going to worship something. And what was to make Israel unique was this prayer that came out of the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this was the daily prayer of the Israelites. Still today amongst Orthodox Jews, this is their daily pray, prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As it said in the Ten Commandments, the very first com commandment, Deuteronomy 5, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the commandment, this is the cornerstone that became the strength for every other commandment, the pillar, the pinnacle that every other commandment fell from. You see, if there are many gods, if there are many, many different gods as some of the other religions of the ancient world and many religions today purport, if there are many gods and when those many gods disagree, who decides? Who decides? You. If there's no God, who decides? You. If I am God, as some religions of the world purport, as Buddhism, for example, well would say. If I am God, who decides? Okay, it's one way or the other. It's either I will follow Yahweh, I will follow the one who alone is God, or ultimately I will make my own decisions for myself. And if we make our own decisions for ourselves, if we act as the sole authority for our lives, then indeed everything is permitted. If atheism is true, if polytheism is true, everything is permitted. And then there's no grounds for any transcendent ethic for life. There's no grounds for any transcendent moral authority that tells us to do this and not do that. And without this cornerstone that there is one God who reveals truth and that there can be no object of truth, no unchanging, transcendent reality, without that, Solomon and the rest of the Israelites thought they just went their own way. We'd be really wise not to trust ourselves so much as to think that we are smart enough to determine truth for ourselves each and every day. On Monday, we will disagree from how we felt on Sunday, which is why we need an objective truth. Coming from God himself, you shall have no other gods before me. 
That standard was, of course, lost under Solomon. There was duplicity in which he was partly for God and partly for the gods of Baal and Ashtoreth and the many, many deities that they developed. Just like duplicity today when you see someone who was partly for God and partly for their own glory. Partly for God and partly for the God called gold. And on and on we could go. And so the house collapses. You see up here on the screen a map of how it looks for the next several hundred years. After the house collapsed, you have the kingdom of Judah down to the south in the yellow and the kingdom of Israel up north in blue. And they are two separate nations starting at 930 B.C. and for the next 200 plus years, there are dozens and dozens of kings to the north in Israel and they're all bad. And there are dozens of kings to the south in Judah, and most of them are bad, with some notable positive exceptions. The worst of those kings in Israel to the north was a man named Ahab, and the postscript of his life reads like this in just a few chapters, 1 Kings 16. It says, Ahab married Jezebel, and he worshipped her gods, and he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal which he built in Samaria. And he did more to provoke the Lord of Israel to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Not exactly the inscription you want on your tombstone, is it? The God of Baal that you hear about again and again and again throughout the Old Testament is the most prominent of the Canaanite deities. And it would be like this. It would be like someone that you know perhaps today who says, I'm a follower of Christ. I worship Him only. I follow the Scriptures. I've looked to the cross and received my forgiveness from Him. And then all of a sudden, slowly but surely, that person starts to wink at the commands of God and look internally at his own moral compass, rather than the moral compass far from the Lord. And then one day, that young man or woman puts down their Bible and averts their eyes away from the cross. And they say, I'll go with Allah instead. That's what it was like when Solomon left the God of his ancestors and went with the gods of Baal and Ashtoreth instead. Now the results of Baal worship were terrible for Israel. There were little altars to Baal that would be set up on the hillsides all over Israel and Canaan. And as the seasons cycled into springtime, worshipers would go out to those hillsides and attempt to summon up Baal from the netherworld in order to bring Baal up and ensure a fertile rainy season. And the Canaanites and with them the Israelites would engage in rituals that included human sacrifice and sexual rites and temple prostitution. And a bit later, the prophet Jeremiah looked down on Israel and the ways that they had debased themselves from the commands of God. And he says this in Jeremiah 7, they have built up the high places to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I, the Lord, did not command, 
nor would it even enter my mind. I couldn't even imagine thinking of such a thing, God says. It didn't even enter my mind, and, and they're doing this. Friends, can I just say again, whatever it is that comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's a quote from A.W. Tozer. That's not mine. But it's one of my favorites. Whatever it is that comes into your mind when you think about God will become the most important thing about you. The first commandment leads to the rest of life. And if we think of God as nasty and mean and a tyrant, we'll be scared of him and we won't worship him. If we think of God as a little buddy that we can cajole and do whatever we want, we won't worship him. If we think of God as the Baals, as the Canaanites thought of God, we'll do things that are unthinkable to God. What we believe about God deeply influences how we live. It influences how we care for or we neglect the vulnerable in our own neighborhoods, how we generously give or greedily hoard for ourselves. It affects how we loathe or love ourselves. Do you know the Bible tells you to love others as you love yourself? Do you realize you can love yourself? The Bible tells you to. You can love yourself. But if you don't think of God correctly, you might be tempted to loathe yourself, to hate yourself. But what you think about God will lead you to love others as you love yourself. What we think about God will determine whether we worship or we don't. So first Solomon permitted this kind of false worship in his own house. And then Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam and the other kings, they participated in this false worship. And eventually Ahab and Jezebel, they moved to promoting it throughout Israel and into Judah as well. And yet even there, the good news is this, even amidst this apostasy and kingdom split, I want to tell you that God was still on the move. Even there, he was looking for people whose hearts would be turned to his goodness and his love. 2 Chronicles 16 is written in the same context as these chapters in the book of Kings. You see up on the screen, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. I've been talking a lot. Why don't you join me and read this beautiful verse out loud from the screen with me. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Isn't that beautiful? Still today, it was true in 900 B.C., and almost 3,000 years later, it's still true today. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the earth. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout this room. The eyes of the Lord would look to and fro throughout the venue to determine whose hearts are fully committed to him, that he might support them and raise them up and give them strength. Wherever you are today, if you look up to God and you say, God, you are my creator, you're my sustainer when I'm weak, you're my redeemer when I'm sinful, you cast away shame and guilt when I have failed other people. God, I give myself to you. If you have given it all to me through Jesus on the cross, the only natural response would be for me to give it back to you. And he says, oh, I will support that. I'll support that. 
God supports you if you say, I am for you no matter what my friends or my family might do. God is looking to support those whose hearts are for him, who would reciprocate his love, that he gives his love and we reciprocate it back to him. First he loves, we love in response. God supports those who stand for him. Well, let me just close out this message with giving two words of application. If God supports those who stand for him, it begs the question, how do we stand for him? And I think at least from this passage, this episode of the Bible, there's two key words that come to mind for me today. One is integrity, and the other one is unity. Integrity goes like this. Am I the same person at church as I am in the neighborhood? Am I the same person at church as I am around the water cooler on Monday morning when the gossip mill gets going? Am I the same person at church as I am on Friday night when all my friends are going out getting drunk? Am I the same person at church on Sunday morning as I am midweek when I have an opportunity to judge other people? With the same measure that you judge other people, God says, so you will be judged. Am I the same person? Now, the word integrity comes from the word integer. An integer, for those of you who remember this simple math, is a whole number as compared with a fraction. And truth is, many people today become fractions. They become duplicitous people who are fractions of a people here, fractions of people there. But what God wants to make us is people of integrity. He wants to make us integers who are whole people, who are single-minded whole people, who are the same people on Monday as we are on Sunday. And God supports those whose hearts are completely his, who are living with integrity. I think of an 18-year-old recent high school graduate in our church by the name of Emma Weiss. She's smart and athletic and she's kind and she refused in her high school years to be pigeonholed by any clique at her local high school. And if her high school is anything like mine was, it was full of cliques. And she refused to be pigeonholed and she found a way that I'm going to hang out with the theater buffs and I'm going to hang out with the athletes and I'm going to hang out with the musicians and I'm going to hang out with the loners too. And guess what? I might be isolated by some group and I might not have the closest friends because I choose not to be a part of any clique. But she said, I'm going to love God and serve my classmates no matter what anyone else thinks of me. Wow. And that meant that sometimes she was isolated. But she told me last week as I was talking with her about this that it was worth it. She would rather be an integer. She would rather be a whole person with everyone than be a duplicitous fraction with anyone. Young woman, lead us. Young men in this church, please lead us. Because this is what we all long for deep down inside, isn't it? To be the same person no matter where we go, to be whole, to admit to our struggles, whatever they might be, and to realize that no one else has it all put together either. But I can be authentic, I can be a person of integrity with whatever I am wrestling with. Can I please get an amen in this room? Come on, that's what we're about here as Christians of this church, that we are authentic people of integrity regardless of what other people think of us. And God will strongly support that man or woman. 
Second, am I pursuing unity? Am I doing all that I can to pursue peace with other people? Am I picky and prickly, or do I pursue peace? Is it about me, or is it about we? You see, Jeroboam and Rehoboam teach us that when me replaces we, then division is right around the corner. A house divided against itself will not stand. Many of us here have experienced the intense pain of a house divided. Many of us experience the intense pain of a family divided. Many of us have experienced the intense pain of a church divided. All of us, I think, are experiencing some pain, at least I am, of a nation that feels increasingly polarized. This foment of anger that we see all around. So thank God the Scriptures implore us to be unique in this. Romans 12, 18 is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. As much as possible, so long as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. As much as possible. It doesn't depend on any of us 100% of the time. But that verse and many others like it beg me to ask the question, am I off with someone? Am I even... 5% responsible for being off with this person. Maybe they're 95% in the wrong. Don't ever say that to them. What can I do to go 95% of the way to get right with this person? Because as much as possible, people of God, so long as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Paul said this was so important that he made it his goal to pursue the bond of peace through the unity of the Spirit of God. Why? Why is that so important to Paul? Because peace is central to the gospel of Christ. Peacefulness in relationships is central to the gospel of Christ. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And in communion, well, we remember that God came from heaven to earth through Jesus. And Jesus came to produce peace for us with God when we were at one time separated from God. Isn't that so? And because we would have peace with God when we were separated with God, then the result is he would have us be peacemakers who go out of our way to make peace with others on the horizontal plane. This turning point in the Bible teaches us these two words. God will not stand with the man or woman who is divided within him or herself. Are you divided today? Choose integrity, and God will support you. And it teaches us that God will not stand with those who are divisive, who seek disunity. A house divided against itself will not stand. Are you at war with someone? Seek peace. The eyes of the Lord look to and fro throughout the earth and across this room that he might strongly support those whose hearts are fully his.
So Father, we admit that we need your help with this. As we come to you in prayer now, we, we confess that, that we want to be people of integrity, but it's very difficult for us. We all fail in many ways, and we need your forgiveness. We confess that we want to be people who pursue peace and pursue unity with others, but it's, it's very, very difficult for us because we've been hurt. And some of us can think of people right now who have hurt us. And so we ask for your help. Would you help us, O oh God, to pursue peace while there is yet time? I thank you, God, for the incredible relevance of this story. It's a sad, sorry example from the nation of Israel's history, a people that was given so much, a people that was uh, compelled to bless others, but chose instead to hoard what they were giving, and they lost it all. So, Father, would you work in us and remind us even today that this is not just a story of history, but this can be our story as well. What is it that you need to work in us that you would strongly support us, that our hearts would be totally, completely given unto you. It's through Christ we pray this morning. Amen and amen.